Hello, and welcome to Conversations with me, Dr. Theo Blackmore, part of the Discover Voices Media Network. So hello, welcome to the latest podcast. It's now um, mid to late November 2023. And today um, I'm, as I usually am, Dr. Theo Blackmore. And today I'm talking to... Well, I should call myself Dr. Jew Gosling, which in fact I am, but I wouldn't have said that. But I'm also known as Jew 90 or indeed Dr. Jew. I'm an artist. I'm artistic director and a co-founder of Together 2012 CIC, which for anybody who's stuck at home offers free online inclusive arts activities. And I'm co-chair of REGARD, the National LGBTQI plus Disabled People's Organisation. And I think I've been involved in REGARD for over 20 years now. Wow. So that's a great way to start talking about REGARD. So what is REGARD exactly? Well, REGARD was founded in 1989, which in fact was the same year as Stonewall. And I think it's telling that it was needed then and it's still needed now. But we're a a disabled people's organisation. We're very much a DPO. We're part of the DPO movement. But we have a kind of joint mission, which has always been to campaign and raise awareness around LGBTQI plus issues within the disabled people's community, to raise disability issues within the LGBTQI plus community, and to work around issues that specifically affect us as disabled LGBTQI plus people, and also to combat social isolation although to a certain extent I think that mantle's been taken up by a couple of sort of newer organizations that are a bit more focused on social life. Okay so I mean let's go back to basics because there might be people here who hear this conversation who don't know what LGBTQI plus means. Yeah and I think that's a very fair point um so we'll go through the acronym first lesbian gay bisexual trans, queer, also questioning, intersex and anybody else who feels they fall into that category, including asexual people, if they identify as part of that movement. It's probably these days, I'm 61, you know, but um, but I think these days a lot of younger people are simply adopting queer versus straight, which I think is very much about saying, well, we don't fit into your box. You know, I think previously we had to sort of find a label that really defined us. I've always said queer by nature, lesbian by choice. Brilliant. Thank you. I've had long since I've long had a problem with the term straight. I don't know how you feel about it as a bit of terminology, but it's just seems to me like it's, you know, it's it's what's the opposite of straight. It's a very derogatory term for everybody else. I just think it's very normative. Well, yes, but I suppose the the reality is that that's how the norm's defined, isn't it? I don't think it, I, I, but I think you're right, you know, it's about people, isn't it? But then we get on to, well, are we persons with disabilities? Are we disabled people? Are we straight people? Are we queer people? You know, it'd be nice just to be Theo and Jew, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So that's for your organisation regard. So you work particularly with um, disabled people who identify as LGBTQI+. And what kinds of things do you do as an organization what was the need what was the need in 1989 that you set yourselves up basically was it you that set the organization up Uh, i didn't become involved with regard to the late 90s um 
one of the founders was Kath Gillespie Sells and also her brother Vince Gillespie. There's actually there's probably too many names to remember and also to recall because of course you know a number of people have passed and I think what we try to do as a committee is hold that kind of history and the expertise of that whole community you know including the people who are no longer with us and really bear that whole history and all of those stories in mind when we're campaigning I think the number well, I, I think there are kind of, let's look at the different communities in terms of need. Um, and let's start with the non-straight community and particularly organisations like Stonewall, although they're beginning to change. Not that that's been exactly widely welcomed. So as one of the people who lobbied them for years to take on the trans, you know, to include trans people, I don't feel at all guilty about the way they've been attacked. But I do have a greater understanding of why they were so resistant. There's a very, very, I'm reluctant to say straight, but there's a very kind of straight definition of lesbian and gay issues that doesn't include disabled people. And it took me decades to work out why organisations that identify as LGBT have traditionally been so hostile, particularly Stonewall, to including disabled people. And I've come to the conclusion it's because we spent decades, centuries probably, saying being gay isn't an illness. And because being gay was always defined as an illness, and there's been such a sort of huge movement to say, no, there's nothing, you know, we're just normal like everybody else. People just won't put those two things next to each other. And yet, as many as one in three of us are disabled. And that's the conundrum. There's a much, much higher level of disability within our community. And that's for a number of reasons. We do have a higher incidence of HIV. So of course that's a factor, but mostly it's the impact of the discrimination and the barriers that we face. You know, they literally disable us. So young people are very often bullied at school, pushed out of school, don't have close family relationships, might not have any family relationships at all. We're much more likely to have left the, the small communities where we've grown up for the cities. So we don't have that kind of connection with friends, We, you know, that we were at school with. We don't, you know, we might get invited at Christmas to the family functions, but nobody's going to come and actually help us. And You've got the whole kind of range of discrimination and the impact on mental and physical health, including the fact that if people are using things like alcohol and drugs as a coping strategy, you know, then you've also got more problems with things like kidneys. So it goes right across the board. So and statistically, more and more figures are coming up to support this. But again, for a long time people wouldn't admit it. So we'd go to an organisation that is the only organisation in terms of hate crime, which is a huge priority for us. And they said, well, actually, almost everybody we see is disabled. And we said, yes, exactly, because it's that additional vulnerability. And, you know, disabled people make softer targets. Oh, no, no, that can't be true. We, we just happen to be seeing these people. And you just think, you know, you're looking at your own evidence and you still will not accept that there's an intersectional issue happening here. So we remain extremely invisible. However, what I would say is that the trans 
community and the sort of younger community who are identifying more as queer are much, much more inclusive, much more mindful of access issues. So things are changing. Um, in terms of the disability community, again, it depends where you are because the old British Council on Disabled People that became the UK Disabled People's Council always had a reserved space for LGBT representation on the board of trustees. So there was a recognition that these things were important. And I think because there was a sort of closeness historically between the disabled people's movement and the trade union movement, where we've always been able to make, well, I think it would be untrue to say that the trade union movement is actually, actually embraces equality, but in comparison, it's a much more equal movement. So you have that kind of expertise, but I remember going to, I think it was an annual general meeting that was in the run up to the founding of Disability Rights UK. And this is very much a historical story. It's not about Disability Rights UK today because I don't know what their policy is. But at this AGM of one of the organizations that was closing to merge to become Disability Rights UK, they were looking at a draft constitution for the new organization. And somebody stuck their hand up and said, you haven't put in the right to family life. And we all thought, oh, well spotted, well spotted. That must have been an oversight. And it turned out it was deliberate. And somebody actually said to me, look, Jew, donors are disgusted at the idea of disabled people having sex. It really puts them off. But now you have gay, now gay people can adopt and gay people can have civil partnerships. We can't possibly, regard can deal with family life. And I still can't believe that that was said when I'm repeating it now, but that was the fact, you know, that, and yet to me, the right to family life is the absolute basis for independent living, whatever label society sticks on you, you know, straight, queer, whatever, family life is the basis of independent living. You know, we have the right to live with who we want, be where we want, just like everybody else. So unbelievable though it seems to me, there is, you know, there's a real issue with the kind of organizations for, in terms of just absolutely not wanting anything to do with sexual orientation in the same way that L the LGBT community haven't wanted disability and sexual orientation to go together. Neither does the disability world. You know, there's so much in there for to talk about. That's just amazing. I That's that's incredibly that it was so explicit. I know. It's an explicit kind of conversation about disability or disabled people and sex or let alone sexuality, just sex will stop. But I do think it's incredible what people will say to disabled people. You know, we're having this conversation while the COVID inquiry is going on. Mind you, it will still be going on next year if we have another conversation then. But the sheer blatantness of saying, let people die. Yeah. You know. No. It's absolutely yeah. horrific. The whole sort of thing is just, you know, it goes deeper and deeper. To go back a little bit on something that you said earlier, which really twicked in my mind, so I'm very interested in ideas about disability, isolation and social exclusion. And for me, there's a big conversation going on about, um, well, just about loneliness and old age, basically. And that's kind of something which we're all kind of thinking about as we age. We can all imagine, say, a partner, a relationship, something or other, or significant other 
dying or passing away or moving on or whatever it might be um and we're then left alone for disabled people it's a very different kind of dynamic and it's a dynamic that kicks in from birth because disabled people are physically excluded from their peer group from their families and from their friends because they get moved into special schools into medical stuff medical worlds and you live where the housing is so you might be miles away from where your family is and that's something I've been thinking about for quite a while but I'd never linked it in with this conversation that we're having now and LGBTQIA plus people who might feel that they have to move away from their small community which might not be welcoming of them so they move to big cities or bigger uh you know conurbations as it were and so it's a complete double whammy. So if you're a disabled person and LGBTQIA+, then you really do move further away and you really don't have those family ties that other people will have because you've moved well, away from your community. Right. And unfortunately, what then happens is that the community life, the queer community life, whichever label you've got within that, focuses on venues. And for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that if you bring gay friends home, you're outed to your neighbours. And that, particularly for a disabled person, can lead to, you know, an onset of a campaign of really sustained, dangerous harassment. So for all sorts of reasons, people feel much safer meeting in venues than they do in their homes. And of course, these days, so many people are being forced to live with their families, particularly disabled people, that they can't out themselves by coming home anyway. But once you can't get to those venues, you know, if you develop any kind of impairment that impacts on your mobility or your, yeah, you suddenly lose contact with all your friends. So what's very, very common is that people disappear. And, you know, if they don't answer their mobile, you probably don't even know where they lived. So yeah. on the other side of that, you've got people who are ill that can't get any help at all because they've got nobody to help them. I mean, I remember probably 2018, 2019, kind of before the Great Plague, obviously, because I've been shielding ever since. But I was invited for the very first time to a Stonewall business conference. I forget exactly what they call it, but it's conference that, you know, it's part of their business community. And it was the very first time they discussed disability. And it was a very interesting, very well attended session because, of course, actually everybody wants to discuss disability. It's just the organisations that can't bear to have these conversations. But this woman sat there and she just cried and cried and cried and cried because she said, you know, because she could relate to everything. And she said she discovered this wonderful new community of disabled people. But she's had to say goodbye to all of her friends and everything she knew because everything revolved around venues that she could no longer get into. And it was almost taken for granted. You know, I mean, my position up until COVID was very much, you know, you keep fighting and demanding the right to get in, but it's exhausting. And it still depends on having enough support to do it. And something I've been saying for a very long time is it is a real disgrace that as people get older, they can't access the community for very, very simple things like, you know, the Flair Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. They they took out the blue badge parking altogether eventually because we kept complaining about the festival cars using it. There's only two seats in an FT1 for wheelchair users. F What's an FT1? Oh, sorry, the, the main cinema in the National Film Theatre run by the British Film Institute. So, you know, squillions of public money in comparison to the rest of us. Yeah. But, the, you know, and yet 
any you know you sh- you should be able to be close to death and go to a film festival you really you know it shouldn't be that difficult to be able to park at the door and go in and if you went to a commercial cinema complex you probably could do that but not at the the so yes it used to be the Les- london lesbian and gay film festival and once they started including trans people they couldn't say the t word so it became flair which apparently is much easier for sponsors to cope with so that's all right then isn't it but um but yeah social isolation i think is is such a big issue for us because like i say number one you've already been cut off from family and friends that you knew growing up and then you're entirely dependent on being able to get into that venue and to be able to see everything to hear everything to cope with the noise to cope with the music you know the nightclubs aren't really meant for that kind of thing yeah so that becomes really difficult and something we haven't even touched on yet is social care because of course if you've got a higher number of disabled people in your community and they don't have the same access as other people do to family support i mean i think it's roughly three quarters of queer people don't have children for example you know not least because you know for people my age they would have had their children taken away very often if they tried children and certainly people weren't allowed to adopt people lost children to the straight partner so there isn't that level of family support we're very very heavily over dependent on social care and on social care that the state funds so on the worst kind of social care again that doesn't help you to get out and about and do anything let alone meet part of your community so yes i mean that's why i'm now throwing all of my energy into online event and activity provision because limited though that is in terms of being able to pay for electricity, pay for devices, pay for data, you know, it's still pretty much the most exciting thing that I think has happened to us as disabled people for a very, very long time is the kind of growth of things like Zoom. You know, there's all sorts of stuff in there to unpack as well. So, I mean, there's the stuff about, well, as a disabled person, then coming out to your family is an incredibly difficult must be an incredibly difficult thing to do to disclose to your family who then might be more who might actually be hostile to you being gay or just completely disbelieve it or completely disregard it or just actually be hostile towards you because of it but in relation to social care as well and paid provision and carers coming in but not paid provision by an individual but by the state coming in there must be all sorts of discrimination that you must deal with as an organization of people being hostile to the sexuality of the person that they're providing care to well absolutely and other incidents such as being sexually assaulted we did a piece of research with the university of bristol i forget exactly when i'd like to say 2017 but that might be completely wrong and i mean i i think it was based around 35 responses because it is very difficult to contact people and facilitate them to take part in the research but yes I mean I think it was I don't have the research in front of me but it was something like a third of people didn't feel safe even being out to their PAs so you know there was like the gay cupboard where you put your gay stuff when yeah. the was in. there were people who'd been sexually assaulted after coming out to their PAs there were plenty of people who'd had to go back into the closet because they'd moved in with their parents I mean covid has had a devastating effect on people having to move back in with family who may never have 
ever been aware of the fact they were gay trans in the first place but of course if you've got other people in charge of well not in charge but if you've got other people who can decide what you wear and you're a trans person forced back into the family home because your social care has collapsed during covid you know you can imagine some of the horror story you know people have just been through absolute horrors you know you'd think that was the solution oh everything else is collapsing but we can go home but that doesn't have the same meaning for most of us no, horrific. And then, so on top of all of that, there's the COVID, like you say, and people people going back and returning home and being stuck indoors with the family and being socially isolated, or if they don't have family nearby, literally being socially isolated. And, you know, we did a bit of work, quite a lot of work here in Cornwall during the COVID inquiry, because local authorities didn't know where disabled people were located, so they couldn't get you know, vaccines to them, they couldn't get um, PPE for their personal assistance and for their carers and their care services. These disabled people then were stuck in the middle of nowhere. They often didn't have access to food. They didn't certainly didn't have any access to social contact. As an organisation, Disability Cornwall, like lots of other DPOs, was phoning out to find people and reach out and say, hey, look, have a conversation with us if you need to talk about things. And so that's kind of all compounded, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think sadly it wasn't any better in the inner city. You know, I was based until very recently in Newham, where Together 2012 is based, and have only been driven out <laughs> by COVID. And um, yeah, shit, the sheer impossibility of being able to stay alive in the situation that I was in. But we had no volunteer schemes. There were, you know, we, I mean, I don't know how we managed, to be honest, but fortunately, somebody who'd worked for me briefly as a, for a PA before, who was a West End director, he and his partner, who was a West End producer, were out of work. So, te- you know, so they contacted us and said, well, do you need any help? But, you know, we never had a single relative visit in what became nearly three years of shielding. We never had a single social work visit. There was no volunteer scheme. You know, I think the poorer the area, the less likely these things were. You know, it's it was like all the government advice. Oh, you know, just do two metres social distancing. And if your front door is less than six feet from the pavement, that's just not possible. You know, if your back door is six inches away from your neighbours, it's just not possible. There was one spot in my garden I could get two metres away from people, but it still required kind of going much, much closer. And, yeah, I I think a lot of the advice was very, very kind of unrealistic. As an arts organisation, Together 2012 ended up doing all of the representation of disabled people in Newham during COVID because there was no funded disabled people's organisation left. And I think that's true of a lot of the London boroughs now where so many LGBTQI plus disabled people are based. You know, there's no DPOs left because they've all been defunded. You know, I contacted Stonewall on behalf of Regard and said, look, we've got the COVID emergency bill and it removes the right to social care. And that's massively going to impact on us as a community that's so over-dependent on state-funded social care. And they just said, oh, we've furloughed the chief executive. We've handed over the COVID emergency bill response to Liberty because we only see a kind of free, you know, a, a personal freedom issue. And I just thought, oh, for goodness sake. And of course, you know, that particular kind of chief executive is no longer there. So... There was a new chief executive who said, oh, yes, they they 
they were sorry about that, but they would at least assist us in the inquiry. But of course, they've moved on. And um, yes, as of now, we have not been able to get the COVID inquiry to do anything in terms of looking at LGBTQI plus disabled people. But we know that we were massively overrepresented in the worst care homes and massively overrepresented in those who died. You know, we we've spent years fighting battles to say that blood relatives should not be the only family members allowed to visit because we've seen members who have still got really good community support being whisked into Christian nursing homes and having their visitors banned because they don't want gay people in the nursing home. You know, all of that was happening before COVID. You know, the people who had no family to make a huge fuss about strangers being moved in to share their bedrooms, discharged straight from hospital. I mean, the first person I knew who died from COVID, caught it from their social care worker, was a disabled friends oh. person. Yeah. Um, the reason why I wanted this conversation, or why I wanted this conversation with you, was to talk about regard as an organisation. So, what do you? What is regard as an organisation? Oh. Regard as an organisation is basically a, a representative group which is open to everybody, including non-disabled people and people who don't identify as any of the kind of queer labels, is trying to make a fuss about these things and to do something about it. And I think that's the reality, you know, rather than sort of, oh, we're an organisation that does this, that and the other, we're the organisation that fights back. We're the organisation that goes... I mean, I, in fact, I remember sort of 20 years ago going to what was then whatever the body was at the time that regulated social care and saying, you know, there's, there appears to be nothing in this annual report about LGBT people. And they were actually gracious enough to say, Dame, whoever it was that was at the top of it, said, no, there isn't. There's never been anything done like that. And that was the beginning of the change. So we were able to get onto committees with what was the Commission for Social Care Inspection and then CQC Care Quality Commission does a lot less on equality and diversity full stop and does a lot less experts by experience, does a lot less co-production. But we were able to get very heavily involved with the Social Care Institute for Excellence and with their co-production network. Again, as soon as COVID struck, they um, furloughed the co-production team and we look at what's happening now and thinking what could have been, you know, how many lives could have been saved if we'd co-produced the COVID response instead of yeah. putting the co-production team onto furlough because the government grant was too small to support them. But yeah, we, we, we make a fuss. It's for about at least 10 years now, the real focuses have been social care and hate crime. Because we're also, as you can imagine, very, very overrepresented in the hate crime figures. And these, as we all know, as disabled people have been going up massively. I think it's, I mean, nobody really does enough research around hate crime, do they? Because, so we don't really understand motivations with intersectionality and why people who can cope reasonably well with a disabled person they perceive as straight or a gay person they perceive as disabled has to get a brick out. I mean, quite literally, if they see a gay disabled person, but there just seems to be something. It isn't just about us being easier to be made vulnerable. There does seem to be something that really stokes up the rage about our existence. So 
Yes. I mean, we also organise events where we can. We don't have any funding. But then I think it's also important to say that over 90 percent, well, no, probably more now, but even before all of the voluntary sector funding cuts. So going back to the kind of, I don't know, the beginning of austerity, 90 percent of the LGBTQI plus voluntary sector was entirely unfunded which is a much, much bigger proportion than the voluntary sector as a whole. So we have the same struggles as other, you know, similar gay organisations. But of course, at least we're used to it. You know, I think I've seen kind of so many DPOs fold over the last decade because they're used to funding. <laughs> you yeah. know, it kept going purely because we've never had any money in the first place. So it's not really been a factor. So you literally have no money whatsoever. I mean... Well, we we therefore no staff, and therefore it's all entirely run by volunteers. Well, at one point, and I mean, this is going back about twenty years, which is the organisation. Yes, a good thing to have a history, I think, to be able to reflect on and learn lessons from. We had project funding, I think, for three years for two part-time staff, and it almost bankrupted the organisation because there was no follow-on funding. People stopped doing their own voluntary jobs because now there was staff to do it and um it just really really didn't work out you can put for the time that you would put into managing staff if you all put in a long-term voluntary commitment of putting those hours into actually doing something you know what you end up with is you know and we would you know we expand the committee whenever somebody's prepared to come along and take the lead on a particular particular area but um, yeah, I think as volunteers, there are circumstances in which you can do more, but certainly it's the only sustainable way to work. We did used to have grant funding from George Michael's trust. He used to run something called the Platinum Trust, and he'd wound that up a couple of years, I think, before he died, because his sister had organised it and his sister wanted to move on and do different things. So he wound the trust down. I mean, he was the main donor for a long time for... BCODP or UK Disabled People's Council. George and, Michael was. Yeah, I mean, I think people don't really know that, you know, George Michael's, one of his key funding priorities wasn't LGBT organisations or music organisations. It was self-run disabled people's organisations. It was in, you know, it was social model, independent living movement, yeah. like DPOs. And I mean, I think a lot of us were heartbroken when he died so young but yes it's um it's funny isn't it when you've got all these pop stars and celebrities that really kind of shout from the rooftops about what they do you know and he was somebody i have no idea what personal experience or what made him have the priorities that he did but you know but nonetheless when regard had money it was mostly due to george michael but we do get you know we get donations for doing bits of consultancy work we get donations for doing speak for public speaking and that pays for the sign language interpretation and captions for the meetings so you know regard as an organization is is it still based in london um well, we've never really had, well, yes, we have had a physical base for about three years and that was in London, but um, no, I, I, I mean, I, I can't really for safer space reasons say where different people are anyway, but no, it's always been a UK wide organisation, but things, 
what seems to have happened over the years is it's always very, very difficult to set up a local group. And I don't mean for regard to do it because we wouldn't do that anyway. But traditionally, whenever there's been a group of LGBTQI plus disabled people set up a local group, it's maybe lasted three years maximum because there's just so many challenges. Right. You know, I wouldn't say barriers, but of course they are barriers. But, you know, there are so many challenges and yeah without an organization that offers them a free meeting space without somebody who's well enough to keep doing the admin groups come and go there's not really the will amongst the dpo movement to support those groups and to you know and i mean maybe there are good reasons but i tend to think that this you know there are lots of intersectional issues and if you're a disabled person of color if you're a disabled woman if you're a disabled queer you have actually got issues that are not the issues that are the main concern of the DPO. And I think if you don't have those separate safe spaces to meet in, then the DPO is never going to be able to represent you. You know, it's interesting. So I remember speaking once to a male wheelchair user and he said, I don't know if I'm, he said, I don't fit into the DPO movement and I don't fit into the LGBT movement either because I'm a wheelchair user. So I can't get into any of the spaces that lots of my friends go to and I can't get into lots of the people don't I've got quite hostile towards me in the DPO movement so I'm quite it's constantly experiencing discrimination essentially yeah absolutely and I and I think anybody would say that in terms of ethnicity culture you know gender there there are a whole raft of I think intersectional issues but this is certainly one of the well, just one of the most obvious, you know, we've, there are so many people of colour, global majority people who are disabled in the UK, and they're not, certainly outside London, represented within the DPO movement. So I don't think it's just about sexual orientation or gender orientation. I, you know, I think there's a kind of broader issue. We, well, I say we, before, back in the 20th century, when I wasn't particularly involved in regard although I was a member towards the end of it then regard was able to run only in well not only in London but mostly in London sort of cabaret nights and so on um aided by the fact that there's actually a huge number of people in the disability arts movement who are also queer but that became more and more difficult to do and I think also because we became more aware that things like social care was such a massive issue we were sort of moving away from the sort of social isolation into the camp, you know, into the not campaigning exactly, but all of the committee work that as activists, we know kind of a lot of things are involved. If you're if you're trying to achieve official change, you end up sitting on a lot of committees. And yeah, I deplore the fact that the government has so little consultation these days, but it certainly saves a huge amount of time in terms of sitting on committees because there's nowhere, you know, there's nowhere for the whole committee structure to go in the end because nobody's listening. So people aren't talking in the first place. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but um, but it does save time to do other things. And I think we've probably done more events since we moved online than we we probably did in the 10 years before that but there are organizations such as parapride who are really setting up specifically to run social events and to lobby around social you know event access so that's what i was going to ask you next is because because regard is based where it is in the southeast 
and there are very few, as you say. I, I I wouldn't. I mean, we we tend to have if we have a, if we if we had because obviously we don't do that anymore. If we had an in venue meeting, it would be in London. But I I don't feel that we've ever been based in the southeast. We're not we're not an organization that's that's had an office apart from that three-year period so we've never had a you know apart from three years out of i don't know i can't do my maths but from 1989 to 2023 we've only had an office for three years so we've never seen ourselves as a southeastern organization we've always seen ourselves as a national organization with scottish representation and welsh representation and so on but again it varies because if you've got no activity in a particular area there's, it's unlikely that somebody's going to come forward to say, yeah. well, actually, I'd like to lead on that area on the committee. So it, it's always a sort of shifting. But um, put it this way, I'm not even in England, although I'm in the UK. So, no, I, I certainly don't see it as a southeastern organisation and never have done. OK, so that's that's my mistake. But the, the, the thing I was trying to get to, really, was that if somebody has a specific issue in a specific area... So somebody from Cornwall, for example, wants to speak to an organisation or visit an organisation, then the only is is regard the only organisation. You mentioned another one there, Para Pride. Well, like I say, there's, there's Para Pride running club, club type events. And I think Rainbow Friends is still going, which is for people with learning difficulties only. Um, but they never had, you know, I, and I think this has been the, the dichotomy, you know, people like Stonewall have always said we represent everybody. And then somebody phones up the helpline and actually they can't deal with the, with the issue because it's yeah. disability related. But there's never been anywhere else to go. And I think this is what I'm saying, you know, on, on every level, we're an incredibly marginalised, isolated group of people. And so and, what can DPOs do? Because, I mean, there are DPOs, well, there are not enough D DPOs, but what can DPOs do to make themselves sort of open, welcoming to the LGBTQIA plus community? Well, you see, I would come back to intersectionality because, you know, lots of LGBTQI plus disabled people might also be people of colour. They yeah. might also be women who feel because, you know, women do often say to me that they find some DPOs very, very male dominated and the way that they operate very male dominated and, you know, very aggressive because it's a particular kind of way of behaving. And so I, I think it's about inclusion. You know, I think it's about DPOs saying, what do we need to do to make ourselves genuinely inclusive of every age group, of every impairment group, of every sexual and gender orientation and anybody we can't even think of? And certainly that's what we've always done at Together 2012. It's about sort of saying, you know, how do we make ourselves culturally inclusive? How do we make ourselves age inclusive? How do we make sure that our activities are inclusive of people with different access needs? And, you know, you don't always get it right, but I've never subscribed to this thing that say, oh, people's access needs are mutually exclusive. I think that's rubbish. It's just a way to divide us. There's always a way of bringing people together. And more than anything, that's what we need now. But, yeah, I think it you can't divide, you can't separate these things into boxes. And I think that's the problem. You know, I'm an artist and I was having this conversation with a group very recently. You can be a woman artist, you can be a gay artist, you can be a disabled artist, you can be a black artist, but you can't be intersectional. So Yinka Shonabare, who's sort of known as the most famous black UK artist, has always been a wheelchair user. 
but it's never mentioned. And people take photographs of him very, very carefully so that they can avoid talking about the fact that he's disabled. You know, my colleague at Together 2012, Alison Marchant, is a mid-career international installation artist, but she's just been missed from the feminist art at the Tate because they've classified her as a working class artist. And it's just that kind of obsession that society has with boxes. And they can't see, you know, as you were saying about being straight, you know, it's like a straight jacket, isn't it? Trying yeah. to be defined as, oh, well, you're straight. And you just think, well, actually, there's more to me than that. You know, and I was having a conversation with somebody else about intersectionality in a different kind of context. And I was saying that intersectionality is the future because it's much more representative of the human diversity because intersectionality brings it all together into one human being in many ways. And so that's much well, more of a say, kind of positive way of thinking about the future well of course for for most of us because most of us as disabled people have intersectional identities our present and our past it's not just that however i think you're right for an organization it very possibly is future looking but that's again because yeah the majority of us as disabled people if you look at the equality act also fall under under other protected characteristics, whether that's gender, race, age, you know, a whole raft of things. And our needs have never been properly catered for. And I think that's unfortunately just a fact. Again, I come back to for all the losses of being able to go in venue safely, being able to communicate online, I think has really opened up communication channels because we can talk across much greater distances we can talk you know we can have things made more accessible to us there's something which i was just very interested in you talking about because you've mentioned it several times you've mentioned um together 2020 2012 the cic what what does that as an organization what does that do well i would describe us as a knit your own legacy organization and i think in that sense it's got quite a lot of co in common with regard Regard used to meet at Vicarage Lane Community Centre in Stratford. Um, and Regard was also a member of the UK Disabled People's Council, which at I think by about 2010 hadn't had its had moved its office from Derby down to Stratford. So when London 2012 was setting up, there was quite a lot of crossover in terms of involvement. The chair of UK Disabled People's Council went on to the committees that were developing the Olympic Park and Regard was invited to be part of the equality and diversity, I don't know what they called it, but it certainly wasn't co-production, but some kind of consultation and involvement mechanism. So as Regard, you know, as Regard represents, we, the chair of UK DPC was also the Regard nominee. So there was lots of crossover between Regard, UKDPC and London 2012. And what became apparent was that there were no plans to involve the local community and particularly local disabled people. And yet local disabled people, one of the reasons that London had the Olympics and the Paralympics, because it's incredible, you know, Newham was already, and it unfortunately is now worse, a very, very deprived area with the lowest level of cultural engagement in the UK. And the late David Morris, who founded the Liberty Festival in London and was working as the mayor of London's disability advisor, 
was seconded to London 2012 to lead on external inclusion. And he became convinced that the Paralympics was a way of achieving change in not just in East London, but in East London and beyond. Sadly, he died very suddenly in 2010, but not before he'd recruited and persuaded us as people who also lived in the area to really try to do something to involve local people and to achieve change. So we hoped that there would be funding, but of course there wasn't. So UKDPC on a shoestring managed to run a festival led by volunteers, headed by me, that involved local people with the Paralympics and particularly local disabled people. And at the end of that, much to our surprise, we were asked to carry on. That was partly because our original plan was to do everything in the fortnight of the Paralympics in the summer. But we lost our venue, which had gone bust during the Olympics. You know, there was just all of this support that was promised to East London was just completely illusory. It was just lies, effectively. So Disability History Month, which was at that point very new, we decided we'd kind of reschedule some of the activities for Disability History Month. And at the end of that, people said to us, well, we'd really like you to carry on. There is nothing left for us in Newham because the art groups that had been running with things like health subsidy had, had closed or in the process of closing. The big day centre that had a stage and a pottery studio and so on had closed. And people who were used to really engaging with arts and being creative were just losing it all. So we set ourselves up as a community interest company and did a lot more voluntary work and a lot more work on minimum wage and a lot of unpaid work getting grants. And today we're a national portfolio organisation of Arts Council England and also receive a sort of equal amount of funding from the National Lotteries Community Fund. So we're very proud of that. What's been a massive change for us since 2020 is suddenly becoming an online organisation when we didn't work online at all. And we've now got a completely new focus, which is to continue to deliver online. And that's for various reasons. What happened, what had happened by 2020 was that rather than having all of these new facilities that were promised as part of the games, instead, just about every community centre that we'd used as a pop up venue had closed. And now Stratford Circus, which was the arts centre, has been closed and turned into a youth club. So it would be very difficult to know where we could now deliver activities in East London, even if it was safe to do so. But we've also had a very, very low vaccination rate in Newham, very, very high excess mortality rate. I think we had the highest COVID mortality rate in Europe. Wow. We continue to have one of the highest excess mortality rates because the health was so poor. There were so many disabled people beforehand. And yet, like I say, by 2020, not even a funded DPO. So we've always seen ourselves as a national organisation because, of course, we were founded by UKDPC, who are a UK or were a UK wide organisation. But the funding is still focused around East London. But what we do is open to everybody. So, yes, I mean, check out regard.org.uk, but also together2012.org.uk and there's definitely activities out there if people are interested. Well, there we go. I don't know how you have the time. You've got the uh, hours in the day to do the work that you do. It's all well, voluntary as well. 
I think the well, it's not all. I mean, I'm I'm paid as artistic director of Together 2012 now. Okay, good. You know, so I yes, I think I I did spend a long time kind of subsidising Together through my working person's tax credit, which has now been taken away from me because I moved. So my circumstances have changed. Apparently that means I can manage on less money, even though my bills are higher, but um, go figure. <laughs> yes. Well, listen, that's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Is there anything that you would like to add really? Just I think just that I would, well, not even I, we would love to see more people coming forward to play an active role in regard what we have is a committee structure where people lead on a particular area of work or they can collaborate and we support them to do that but they pretty much have autonomy as well you know there's a level of trust so somebody might be the person who liaises with hiv and aids and all of those organizations or they might represent trans people or people of color or deaf people or people in scotland or people in wales or you might just want to come on the committee because you're good at being a treasurer or you're good at marketing you know it's the motto for together is together we are strong together we can change our world but I think it goes further than that you know and I think that's true for everything in terms of disabled people you know it's about coming together if you've yeah if you've got a little bit of time and you'd like to become involved we'd love to see you but if you just fancy sitting back in the audience then check out the Together 2012 website because we're also now running some joint events with regard for LGBT plus history month and pride month in June how brilliant. Hey, listen, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Um, thank you very much for your time. Oh, um, it's a pleasure. Wish you well for the future. And let's hope that um, lots of people listen to this and hear the work you're doing. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. Brilliant. Thank you, Jude.